Hey, it's Mike Frazier. Rock on! Hey, Metalheads, Scott here. Richie. And uh, we are on the last episode of Little Mountain Sound this week. Can you believe it? Yeah, it's 2017, (laughs) 18, 19. Yeah, kind of a a long road, but uh, trying to get it in. And uh, we kind of... uh, kind of saved the best for last and uh, initially i had another person we played prior that i was going to do last but uh you kind of talked to me and and you made good sense on who to have last no when you after you said it i was like you know what you're right yeah we wanted mike on yeah and that uh, was last so obviously this week you know mike frazier on with us once again um huge friend of ours and uh he's done so much for the show and just such a really good guy and yeah, I mean, you were right. Having Mike last was the right thing to do. Yeah. Just a quick aside. Um, one of the albums Mike worked on at Little Mountain, it actually ties into Little Mountain, uh, Blue Murder album. Uh-huh. Um, and of course, Ray Gillen, uh, you know, his anniversary of his death was uh, re- recently enough. I think yeah. he died in 93. Yeah. And I, I put it up on the Facebook page and someone asked me about, uh, you know, d- the demos that yeah. Ray did for Blue Murder. Yeah. So I said, I'll actually, I actually know someone. Yeah. I might be able to find something out about that. Yeah. And I contacted Mike and um, Mike said Ray was well gone at the, by the time they got into the studio. Hmm. And he says he thinks he might have heard one or two demos that he did. But he also mentioned that John Sykes talked to Ian Gillen mm-hmm. or mentioned that Ian Gillen and Glenn Hughes were another two singers yeah. that he wanted to sing in Blue Murder. Huh. So there's a, an interesting uh, yeah. thing there. <laughs> he, 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 Sykes likes the um, he likes the old Deep Purple guys, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, at that point, I think Glenn wouldn't have been in any shape to do it either. No, <laughs> I wouldn't think so. Um, yeah, that was. Yeah, he wouldn't have been in any shape. And to he, be honest, I, I mean, I, I like Ian's voice and stuff. I like Ian's voice with purple i liked ian's voice with gillen but i don't think it would have been no. right with, that's with, hard that's hard rock yeah i just i just can't ah, i just can't hear it i just can't you know it's and maybe because i'm just used to, to how it's always i've always heard it i, I don't know but I it's just too can't. structured ian ian gillen is, is yeah, more free form yeah exactly um jazz not yeah. jazzy but bluesy yeah uh improv, improv. kind of stuff yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if we listen to the Blue Murder album, it's anything but that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not saying that like it's a brilliant album, but it's I I can't see Ian Killen singing no, any of that material. Either. No, I can't either. I mean, maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what I can't hear is that. But uh, yeah, that is cool. That's that's kind kind of interesting. But uh, this one's uh, a little bit different because uh, this is kind of a. I don't know. How do you how do you describe Two-parter. it? Yeah, but I, I again I couldn't get down for the first one. <laughs> and uh Richie couldn't leave well enough alone, so we, we actually ended up scheduling a second interview with Mike for that. And it actually worked out really well. Um uh, so this one's really interesting where you get uh one interview with Mike and I and one interview with Richie and Mike. So uh, Yeah, I haven't heard your one. <laughs> I, I, when we're doing this I haven't heard your interview. <laughs> well, it's been so long that I, I know. can't even remember mine. I know. Um I think mine is only 25 minutes. I had very specific questions because yeah. a lot of the questions in the first one, 
I wanted to ask him for right. the first one yeah. and I couldn't get down. So and you asked I, him. I fit him in. So it was only yeah. after that I, I I said, right, there's a couple of other right. questions I want to ask. Like yeah. one was about the Poison album. Which no, we no, I didn't think you asked anybody about that. Yeah. Uh, that was um, Flesh and Blood. Yeah. And um, there was a, a couple of other yeah. questions in there. Yeah. And uh, this is, I mean, this is what I mean about Mike, right? Is a guy who's as busy as he is, that he was so gracious to be like, Oh, you need to get some more questions for me, Richie? Yeah, okay, I'll do mm. that. I mean, who does that? But Mike Frazier does, yeah, he's right? Great. And, great. and that's just, and it's not like he's, you know, sitting around doing nothing. I mean, he's, I don't know if the guy sleeps. Well, I contacted him a while back and, because uh, he wants, he hit me up and he said, Richie, I want to listen to every episode of this. Yeah. Whenever they come out, yeah. let me know what, what your, when they come out and I'll right. listen to the link. And I asked where where was he? And he said, "Oh, I'm down in Australia doing the Airborne album, <laughs> and then I'm going to Vancouver, and then I'm doing this, and then I'm doing that." So it's not as if the guy sits in uh, oh, yeah. the studio in uh, Vancouver, yeah. Brian Adams one, and does all his work there. Right? He travels because another time I contacted him, he was in uh, Poland yeah. doing an album, <laughs> and I'm thinking, "Holy shit!" You know, with all the technology these days, do you right. have to actually go anywhere? Yeah, but he's I, I mean, again, it's just I, I, it's really awesome that he's he's willing to. Do do this and whenever we talk to him we always learn new stuff and it's just it's just really great yeah yeah the the only thing now that i would like to sit down with mike and do something on he's done every acdc album since the razor's edge yeah and i know there's not many but he's worked on them all i wouldn't mind picking his brain now and going through all of those yeah, uh, well, if he can, if, if, if he, he can. can, yeah, because we definitely don't want him like excised from that camp. Yeah, you know I mean? when you, know? you when you look at a lot, some people before, um, I'm not talking about Mike. I'm just talking in general. Yeah. Sometimes even when they talk about albums that they've worked on in the past, yeah, they get in trouble. Right, uh, Kiss albums yeah in part- oh, oh. you know what i mean like i want to get gene angry yeah you've <laughs> had producers on in the past people who were like um we had someone on and i'm not going to name who it is and he said off air that you know he didn't really want to get into that because he'd gotten into it in the past about an album he worked on over 20 years ago yeah. and i'm thinking what the hell is wrong with these people right you know <laughs> You know, the story is a it's story. If it happened, it happened. It's it's twenty years old. Like they're yeah. not promoting it now. And, and but I think just some bands are a little bit, you know, afraid of uh, maybe the truth getting out there, even if it's bent a little bit. I uh-huh. I don't know, or maybe even the bands don't remember and they don't want to know. Yeah. But um, yeah, with Mike, maybe maybe I don't know. He's not allowed to talk a lot about ACDC, and if he's not. I was, you know, there's no problem there. I'm right. not, I'm not going to, you know, push him on it or, but because ACDC are a band, I think that you're either in the inner circle there. Exactly. exactly. Or, or you, oh, they don't even, they don't even know you exist. Yeah, you're out. Yeah. And, um, which is why, one of the reasons why they're as successful as they are, even though it's only Angus now, really. Yeah. But, um, anyway, we're getting off on a tangent here. Yeah. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of been a long road, and you know, trying to get this all done. I mean, we started this in 2015. Here we are at the end of 2016. I haven't. I haven't we, we, you mentioned before about the next project. I haven't even contacted anybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, you, you learn certain things, but when you we've done strange highways now, and we've done this, and one of the things you learn is um, you should you should never try and bank all your audio mm-hmm. because, uh, and it it's the nature of the beast. You end up talking to the guy, 
and you mightn't dare it for a while, and some of the stuff that he talks about yeah. is gone. Yeah. Um, uh, like, well, except that, I mean, the, the next one that you were thinking about, that's really... Well, that's all old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's none of that. Yeah. None of that so that one there, I'm kind of like, this is this is good. It's not like it's not like any of those guys we're talking to are going to have a new album out or go out on tour. Well, none no, of them. No albums. Exactly. Yeah. No no tours. No albums. Nothing. Yeah. So uh, so that I feel, and and the other thing is, I think it's it's a great story. But uh, what I know? might what I might try and do on the next one is record one, and then air it. Yeah. And then record one, and then air it, and maybe it's a little bit better that way. It's a little bit more. It's a better time frame on it, I think, hmm. rather than having eight of them. Yeah, and then banking them all. I, I, I don't know. I, I just. I mean, it helped to bank them because um, they were there, ready to go. Just a matter of me going in there and editing them up and fitting them in the time frame. So, in that in that respect, it helped. Yeah, uh, but uh, whatever. Yeah, it's funny though. Like, I've had people onto me. Uh, why didn't you ask him about this album or that album? And I, I, I'm, I said like, we're talking about Little Mountain, yeah, and that's all we're talking about is Little Mountain. I'm not going to ask him about an album they did right. ten, five years ago or eight years. I might touch on it, yeah, but I'm not going to go into detail right. about it. Um, you know, someone asked me, um, why didn't you ask Bob Rock about Load? And I'm like, load was done in '96. Little Mountain was gone. Yeah, he wasn't there anymore. Right. Um, I was talking to him about Little Mountain. Right. And I didn't want to. I didn't want. It's not that I didn't want to get into it. If I had had two hours of Bob Rock, yeah. and done a whole career thing, I, there's a ton of albums I would have loved to have asked Bob Rock about. But yeah. we didn't have him on to talk about right. that. And um, and honestly, I mean, he probably wouldn't have come on to talk about that. Yeah, they'd probably appreciate it more because yeah, a lot of these producers they start somewhere. Yeah, and then they blow up. Yeah, and then people forget where they started. Uh-huh. Now, I'm not like, with Bob. Bob had a massive career in at Little Mountain as well. Like yeah. the albums that that studio blew up. Yeah, all the stuff he did in the seventies. Maybe a lot of people don't ask right. him about. And we got it. We got it, all the punk and all that. And right with Mike, the same thing. Mike did the punk bands and some of the lesser known names that worked in the studio. Um, I think that helped when we asked people to come on when mm-hmm. we told them who else we got on and it was yeah. like, wow, you talked to Bob Brooks and, you know, you talked to, um, you know, Ron Vermeulen and all these guys. Yeah. We didn't just get Bob and Mike yeah. and then leave it at that. Right. We, we tried to get as much of the story out there as yeah. we could and yeah. there's other people, like Mike Fraser gave me a, li- a load of names. Yeah. I just handpicked a lot of them I, I, yeah. and if they said yes, they'll come on, I just didn't go down the list any further right. there was no point he could have ended up at 20 at this. and then it would have been 2019 and then it would have been 2019 and everyone would have been really bored shitless of this but yeah this is the end of it um, it's got Mike on Yeah, um, Mike's been a great friend of the show for a couple of years now Yeah, and um, he was gracious enough to give us a lot of names help us with Bob Rock and you know we greatly appreciate that Um as Mike said himself, nobody, he doesn't think anyone has ever done something like this on the studio before, mm. which amazed me because you look at a documentary on the likes of Sound City, uh, and I haven't really seen any other documentaries in any other studio, but Little Mountain was massive, massive studio. Yeah, for, yeah. And, you know, the multi-platinum albums. And well, the, I mean, bands. there was this, the ones that were done on, on like, uh, Muscle Shoals and, and stuff like that. But, yeah, not really any of the other other 
you know, bigger studios. There's been some nice books written about some of the uh, the English studios as well, which is which is pretty cool. But yeah, nothing. Um, like you get you get like you that. get a VH1 classic or a behind the music thing yeah. right on bands, right? Yeah. If they were to do one on Little Mountain, look mm-hmm. at the bands that they would have had. Yeah. To do an episode on that recorded there. Right. Like ACDC, Aerosmith, Metallica, Motley right. Crue. Like the biggest rock bands of the 80s. Yeah, but you also software. wonder like what kind of footage they'd be, you know, be available. I mean, yeah, there's, what is it? The Aerosmith the, yeah, the pump one. Yeah. very good. There's, 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 a, there's some great footage of... Uh, of uh, of Frasian there and and uh, yeah, but the year, and Bruce year, Fairburn year and, and a half in the Metallica one yeah some there too mountain. yeah yeah but but not a lot yeah you know yeah. Um, so but anyways yeah this is uh this is this is the wrap for Little Mountain but uh, Mike's got a lot of good stuff as always so oh, uh, yeah this is probably one of the ones that you'll have some some great stories here to listen to so M- uh, Mike you see all these guys behind the glass they nearly remember yeah all of it yeah. And that's what a great to get on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, definitely, uh, uh, this is a good one. Um, of course, it's going to be a longer one than what we've been doing the last few weeks, definitely, because Mike's got a lot to say. So, of course, for those stations that uh, we only get the hour block, I apologize in advance, but obviously you'd be able to to get this, um, you know, up on the, on the website or up on iTunes and, and hear the whole thing. But uh, for the other places that have us on for... Uh, for the larger blocks of time, obviously the whole thing will be there. But uh, what do you say we uh, go ahead and uh, roll with Mike? Sure. All right, guys. I, I think we're ready to lay this first track down. Take one. Roll. Prescription is more cowbell. <laughs> 
So recorded on November 19th, 2014, this is our conversation with Mike Frazier about Little Mountain Sound. Well, it's great to be talking to you again. And, uh, yeah, you too, buddy. Yeah, and uh, Richie's seriously bummed out. He had something come up last minute, and he was frantically texting me, and uh, he's mm-hmm. like, I can't believe I'm not, I'm not going to be making the, the call tonight. So he... Uh, <laughs> He did definitely. You want me to let you know he was very upset that he he actually couldn't make it down for it. But uh, oh, bummer! So uh, why don't we just why don't we dive right in? All right. Sure. Awesome. So of course, uh, you guys, as you know, as we're doing our big little mountain sound project, there's one person we absolutely positively have to talk to. It's it's a must, and that is Mike Frazier. We've had him on the show before, and we're so glad to have him back on the show again. And so here he is. Producer extraordinaire, Mike Frazier. How are we doing tonight, Mike? Hi, guys. Yeah, I'm doing great. Doing awesome. Um, you know, excited to be talking about this. That was, uh, and I hope I can dredge up some uh, memories. That was, uh, that was a while ago, 30 <laughs> years or more. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it was a pretty, pretty great studio at the time, I tell you. Yeah, we've talked to, you know, most of the, you know, the owners and, and those folks. And, you know, we had some really great conversations with those guys. But, you know, they always talk about saying, well, really, you know, you, you got to talk to Mike. You got to talk to Mike. He's, you know, one of the guys. Or you got to talk to Bob. or And yeah, um, yeah. so, you know, apparently you are the man, you know. <laughs> so it's kind of like it's like Mike Frazier and Ron Obvious seem to be like the, the two guys that everybody says, those are the two guys you got to talk to. So we did get to talk to Ron. Had a great talk with him, but uh, we finally have got you on the dial and uh, dive into a little bit of Little Mountain Sound story. Right on. Well, you know, I started there in, uh, I think it was late 78. I um, uh, started there as a janitor. Uh, they didn't have any openings. And so I started there as a janitor. I was a foot in the door there. And at that time, it was mostly a, a jingle company. You know, they uh, they wrote and produced and recorded uh uh, TV and radio ads and, and stuff like that. So uh, the door was mostly shut at about 5 or 6 p.m. And, uh, and I'd do my janitor stuff. And, and as I got to know my way around the place a bit, uh, they'd uh, have me help out on some of the jingle sessions and coiling cords and putting up mics and all that kind of stuff. And uh, right at that time, Bob Rock was also an assistant engineer there. And, and uh he uh, started recording little bands at night in the downtime, you know, after six o'clock kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, it just kind of gained momentum. And before we knew it, you know, the place was kind of running 24 hours a day. <laughs> and there was more and more uh, music, you know, rock stuff being done there. And uh, the jingle guys would start getting a little mad because, uh, you know, they'd come in in the morning and either the sessions weren't, properly set up or we'd have a mess left over from the night before or something so you know they started kind of pushing us back and they said okay well you can't start till midnight and you got to be out by you know three or four in the morning so uh and i had moved on from being the janitor then so there's a cleaning crew that came in so they said you gotta have the cleaning crew enough time to clean the studio kind of thing and uh you know and bruce fairburn started working out of there a lot and bob and bruce hooked up and um Next thing you know, uh, now we're booking, block booking 24-hour things and kind of kind of moved the jingle business right out of there, and it turned into this great rock studio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you look back, it's an amazing kind of transformation from, you know, all intentions of being, yeah, we really need a great jingle studio to, to just yeah. all, you know, some people think almost overnight, but just this really neat transition into this, just this kind of 
on, I don't know what it is, uh, like a mecca for musicians wanting to record great albums. It was, uh, it's a great story. Well, you know, I think one of the biggest reasons was that was there's a guy by the name of John Vertasic, was the head uh, tech tech guy there, and he uh, he helped uh, sort of put it all together with you know the proper gear and kit with all the gear going, and and his guy at the time was Ron uh, Obvious, which mm-hmm. he's already talked with, so Ron uh, learned all his stuff off John, but it was you know people like that, and I think over the years, looking back on it, it was a it was the culmination of the right people at the right time, you know, people that were like Bob and myself that were eager to to learn and get going and want to do this and and a great great tech staff and you know the owner wasn't afraid to put money where it needed and we didn't have a lot of money up here you know all the big recording meccas were sort of new york la toronto mm. and you know what was vancouver we're a little little hick town so we didn't have a lot of a lot of big money flowing through our uh, our veins but you know we made it work and uh, it was just the right people you know it's we'd have you know christmas parties and uh, we'd all go to them, and it'd just be a little dinner somewhere and a couple little drinks. But you know, God, they were fun because we were we were all a pretty tight crew. You know, yeah, almost yeah. like being on a you know serving in the navy or something. <laughs> You're on this battleship, and and it's uh, us against everybody else kind yeah. of attitude. You know, when you talk about it like that, it, it almost seems like you know you talk about this this great cast of people that you had. It's almost like when you have one of these a great band and it's just all the right chemistry of these players. It seems like you guys just had all the right chemistry of your players the same way, and it it just all came together as just this amazing thing that people seem to to learn and appreciate and grow together, and that's part of what made it all work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and uh, you know, years later when you started working at other studios, you go in there and say, "Oh, this oh this is an amazing studio." Walk in, and the staff wasn't you know it was staffed, but mm. It didn't seem to be on the same level or the camaraderie. I guess that was the big part of it, it was the camaraderie. And I think that spilled into, you know, the bands would come in and they'd be become part of our family for a while. And they just, you know, we just did great records there because of that. Yeah. It was a fun place to work and, and it was a good place to work. We got stuff done and because of our tech staff, hardly anything broke down. And, you know, it was just really conducive to get in there, do some great, great music and, uh, and uh, you know, you know. Yeah. One of the things we'd asked a lot of the folks, and they all uniformly said the same thing. They said, you have to ask Mike. And we, we'd asked everybody, you know, what it was that, that makes, uh, you know, Bob and what made Bruce such great producers. And we've asked a couple of people this, and they all said, you know what, you really ought to ask Mike that question. So I'm asking you the question. Yeah. What was it that makes Bob such a great producer? And what was, you know, what was it that made Bruce such a great producer? Well, I think with Bob, you know, one of the things, uh, like I said earlier, is we didn't really have a lot of gear and a lot of stuff, so we're trying to make records sound like uh, some of our favorite records that had been done elsewhere, and, and, you know, we just had to really work hard, and then eventually we found out that, oh, because they have all these amazing microphones, which we didn't, so, you know, you would just really have to dig deep and work hard at, at getting the result, and because of that, because of that work ethic, it, it turned into amazing things, and then when we finally couldn't get a hold of good gear, uh, it, was, it became easier for us, you know. But I think it was mostly the work ethic, you know. We were we were there 14, 16-hour days, and and same with Bruce. Bruce was was amazing at 
uh, you know, his work ethic as well, though he wasn't a long hour guy, he was very efficient. He was a great coach at coming in and he says, okay, today between, you know, one o'clock and, and 3 p.m., we're going to do this. And then now we're going to move on to this. So he always kept things flowing and didn't let him get bogged down, which is very easy in the studio. You know, he'd oh, do yeah. stuff over and over <laughs> and over again. And next thing you know, it's three in the morning and you get to a point where, where fatigue sets in and you you know it takes you three hours now to do what you should have done in 15 minutes so bruce is great at keeping things rolling and keeping the sessions interesting and fun and uh and the combination of that and, the, and our work ethic you know i think it was just a winning combination do you think part of it too was the fact that where you guys were all kind of coming up together that you didn't have you know, really these personalities that were there that were kind of, oh, I'm, you know, I've seen it all. I've done it all. I know how to do all this stuff. It seems to me when, you know, when I talk to people, there was a lot of, wow, we could do this. Wow. I didn't, wow, that's a cool thing. And <laughs> there seemed to be a lot of this just very open, eager, try anything kind of attitude. Well, exactly. And, and probably a lot of innocence, you know, we were all very innocent and thought, oh, well, we can make this and we can make it do that. Oh, great. And Probably the same with Bruce. He started off as a horn player in a band, and, and the band decided to get rid of the horn section, and he was sort of out of a job, so he said, okay, well, then I'll produce you. <laughs> so, you know, he didn't go to any producing school or anything. It was just sort of by default and, and say, okay, well, what happens if I do this? And, you know, same with us. What happens when we push this button? Oh, oh. it does that. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know definitely when we were talking to Ron and, he told us all about the whole garage bay drum setup and all that. And that was, you know, to me, that was a great story of looking at what you have and you, you can't afford all these, you know, massive plate reverbs and all this other killer gear. But you found you have this great back garage thing and, and set that up. And he talked yeah. about how, you know, all the microphones getting set up the first time and how you guys quickly like wrote everything down and kind of had a master setup to start going by and i thought that was kind of a just a great story and i don't think you'd ever hear that kind of a story coming from a new york and la with maybe the exception of you know when they set up the record plant or the power yep. station it was kind of like oh this this is a great place to put drums but that that to me was that was a great little mountain story is that whole part yeah when you set up the drums uh, in studio a there's a, a doorway out to the loading bay and we had to sort of build a little with baffles kind of like a a, a tunnel mm. to sort of channel the sound out that way a bit but the baffles were covered in in soft absorbent kind of material so we're kind of losing a bit of it so <laughs> i can't remember what session but we uh went out and bought a whole bunch of sheet metal <laughs> so the studio owner's like looking at this bill and instead of getting microphones or this or that he's now paying for sheet metal <laughs> what's this i remember hauling these eight by Eight by two, what were they? Eight foot by four foot, you know, like plywood sheet, but they're sheet metal and they're heavy, and they had to get them all wired up to these things. And you know, we would go to any length to to get what we wanted. Yeah. <laughs> and Ron actually sent me a photo of one of the sessions with the drums all set up in there and everything. So it was pretty cool. Some of the some of the photos that he did send us of that, and uh, he also talked a lot about. I mean, people pounding on that back door while you guys were tracking that they were pounding along in the music as well, which I thought was something that you just wouldn't hear about anywhere else either. Yeah. Well, there's many a record too. You hear all the, uh, you know, the trucks driving by in the laneway or uh, sirens and, and, you know, because we're pretty close to the uh, Vancouver Harbor, there's a lot of seaplanes. So you'd hear these seaplanes 
flying away. And I think that's what gave us that idea for uh, for on um, uh, the AC, uh, Aerosmith record with the plane taking off at the beginning, you know? Because, <laughs> you know, if you're really quiet, you could hear all this stuff, or next door you'd hear the other band playing. And, you know, we had to kind of keep the, the loading bay mics down low because some bands were freaking out. And, oh, we don't want that band on our record. And say, oh, trust us, you won't hear it. <laughs> really, yeah, if you're using, like, Newman's or Classic, they'll just, they pick up so much stuff from everywhere. It's amazing the stuff that they yeah. get. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so during the 80s, were you really trying to focus on just doing rock albums or were you, you know, yourself just trying to do other things too? Or did you, you know, did you have really a rock focus? Well, it, it ended up sort of the rock focus by default. And I guess it was sort of the projects that came in through Bruce and uh, and Bob. And then I got involved with, you know, it started with a band called Prism, which were pretty sort of late 70s kind of early 80s kind of rock band and the Loverboy guys in the early 80s and then that went into Bon Jovi so it's just all this stuff coming in but you know in the meantime there's a lot of other stuff uh, we're doing uh, I did a bunch of choir stuff with one of the uh, the jingle engineers had a lot of contacts that so they'd come in and want to record a choir and okay sure we'll come in and do that so for me music was music um, the bulk of it definitely was rock but that was just kind of what we were attracting mm. but uh, there's a lot of cool stuff um uh, terry jacks i don't know if you remember terry oh, jacks yeah. yep. that song seasons in the sun he used to come in and and dabble away in different songs and his wife susan jacks is another really great singer she'd come in and it's sort of more of that uh, mor type music and we had the platters come in once mm. to the do a record and so there's all sorts of cool stuff in between yeah. uh that could kind of fit in there. And at the time, they're still trying to get a lot of the bigger jingle sessions they do in there, you know, for any uh, string dates or big horn dates or something. But, you know, everything had to try and get shoe, uh, shoehorned in, in between all the rock stuff. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so do you remember which band was the first band you work with that you had been a fan of? And, you know, then they show up and you're like, holy crap, I'm working on so-and-so's record. Well, a little bit it was with the Prism stuff. You know, Bob and Bruce were doing that. And I was a fan of them before I even knew what a studio was. So that was pretty cool. But the real defining moment was when Aerosmith came in. And I remember Bob and I, I think it was a, a Saturday, we had to come in and start setting up for the Monday morning kind of thing. And we're kind of sitting there all a bit bummed out that we had to work on a Saturday. And it was just basically setting up and you're not recording anything. And and all of a sudden in the door could walk Stephen and Joe in their long uh, leather duster coats and coming in and we thought, wow, this is pretty cool, actually. <laughs> We're sitting here on Saturday night hanging out with Aerosmith. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a very good Saturday night, absolutely. I would agree with yeah. you 100%. Yeah. yeah, so that one was, you know, I, know, I remember Bob and I looking at each other and, and saying, you know, we've got to pinch each other here because can you believe this is actually happening, you know? Yeah. Now, when you were doing that one, did you instantly take the fan cap off when work started, or did you find yourself still a little bit, at least on that first album, kind of like, holy crap, this is Aerosmith the whole way through? No, the fan cap came off pretty quick. Those, these, those along with the Eagle cap stay at the door, pretty much. <laughs> you know, you have to. You have to get a good working relationship with them, and, right. and they've got to trust you, and, and, you know, you can't always be caught staring at them with a, a notepad and a can you sign this for me? You know, kind of thing. It's, you know, everybody comes and again, brings that band into our little family that we had going there. And, 
and uh, away we went. So I think that was another reason the little bunt was great because the band just felt comfortable. You know, we didn't have any big security things you had to get through to get get in there or anything, and everybody just felt at home. Yeah, and those albums, you know, with Pomp, with Permanent Vacation, I mean, there was a lot of expectations in the industry about that one, and did you guys feel the pressure at all about that? You know, that they'd, they'd come back and, you know, were done with Mirrored, and it was kind of a lackadaisical reception and stuff, and so, there, it, you know, it seemed like for, you know, for the buying public and for the record companies, there was a, a lot of spotlight on those albums and how well they were going to do. And, and did that translate to any of the atmosphere with the sessions or were you guys just going along doing your thing? Well, the permanent vacation, the first one was, um, it, there was some sort of nerves going on, but it, it was pretty lighthearted. Um, remember the band saying, and I think Stephen particularly was saying that, that he says, it's so great. He says, to be here knowing what we're doing. He says, all our other records, he says, we'd be just so out of it. He says, you know, some of the songs, they'd throw a bunch of pillows on the ground and put a mic there and and even just kind of lie there on the ground. They said, okay, when you hear music, sing. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so he said, we never really knew what was going on in the records till we get handed the finished thing at the end. So he says, it's just so exciting to be a part of this this thing and, and feeling like you're, you're, you know, know what you're doing and, and you're aware of everything that's going on. You know, they're kind of like kids in a candy store. They were really excited. Mm. And then uh, that sort of translated a little bit more into uh, Pump, but there was a lot more expectations on that one because Permanent Vacation did so well. Mm. I guess they were thinking, well, hey, maybe this is just a, you know, one chance that we had. But uh, So that one got a little bit more serious. There's a little bit more... Um, I wouldn't say arguments, but it got a little more tense through that record for sure. Yeah, yeah, and that one there that had the film crew on it as well, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That added to it, though. You know, you sort of started forgetting about the the lights and everything on, but you know, I think that added a bit of a a stress to it too. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I think uh, I haven't watched it in years, but there's that making a pump, and mm, I don't right. think I don't think they kept a lot of the stuff out of it. Yeah, there seems to be a lot more of the stuff that they were doing, like down in Cape Cod and stuff like that, if I remember correctly, and not as much yep. about what was going on at Little Mountain, so, which is kind of unfortunate, because uh, to me, I think that probably would have been a more of an interest to me, you know, look, watching how that all played out. Yeah, yeah, well, I guess like that Metallica is some kind of monster. It's like, well, how much do you really want to put out there? Do you want to put it all out there? <laughs> and to me, it kind of ruins the mystique of it, too, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, we used to have a sign hanging in the studio. Um, how did it go? Uh, making rec records is a lot like making sausages. It's best not see how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of yeah. true, because there is some some pretty, you know, strong arguments, and I wouldn't say down to fist fights, but you know, there's some pretty tense moments, and and that blows over. It's like a bunch of brothers fighting, but, you know, do you really want to put that out there? It is true. I mean, you really can do that. I can just remember doing that in the studio and just, like, you're just ready to start punching each other and stuff. And, you know, yeah. a little yeah. while after that, you know, it's done, and you kind of like go, oh, all right, well, I guess that needed to be done for that song, but, okay, we're still friends. Life's good. Let's keep going. And, yeah, it just it is amazing how tense things can become. Yeah, yeah. Well, like some bands, you hear stories that they can't even go in and, you know, record their parts at the same time as the other guys. You know, they come in later, weeks later or whatever, and I think, well, well you know, how can you do a record like that? Well, you can, but, you know, it won't be fun. There won't be any interaction with each other. And Right. I don't know. I, I, I prefer doing it the full band. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. Then you also have the, you know, the people kind of trading off ideas. Hey, why don't you do this or do that or whatever? And otherwise, you're just kind of like, you know, everyone's doing a little individual solo record and they're mashing it all together, <laughs> calling it a band. I just don't get it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did one record where the guitar player and the singer weren't getting along, so we did all the guitar parts and then sent him all the tapes to do uh, his vocals. And he he didn't have enough tracks or he wanted more tracks, so he ended up erasing a lot of the guitar parts, sent the tapes back, said, okay, put the guitars back on now. <laughs> oh, I remember that didn't go over too well. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, that's and that's a that's a budget hit there too, right? I mean, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So um, they had mentioned uh, Ron had mentioned that that uh, we needed to ask you about the Jimmy Page being locked out story. Oh wow! Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the last chapters of Little Mountain, and uh, the owner at the time, Bob Rock or Bob Brooks, uh, had sold it. To uh, and you know, I don't even forget their names. I've erased it out of my mind, and uh, had sold it to them. But I don't know what went on in, in the back thing. But this guy, I guess, didn't have his money together, or the financing fell through, or something. And uh, there's all this money owed on some of the, uh, the boards and the tape machines or whatever. So the the bank actually came in and to repossess everything. So we showed up for work. We're in the middle of doing the Coverdale page record and. You know, showed up and there's big chains across the the front door and two sheriffs standing there and they said, nope, you can't get in. It's this is locked down and we're like, well, we've got all our tapes and all our gear and everything in there. You can't keep us out. And and uh, I think uh, we went to the court and had a some emergency injunction. Anyways, we managed to get back in there at three or four that afternoon and and I think can't really remember. I think we ended up finishing off everything in that next week or so and got got the heck out of there. But that was sort of the end of Little Mountain. And uh, then those owners started selling off the gear and sort of really, the place just got really run down. Yeah. <laughs> now, I understand that, that um, a lot of that gear did actually end up filtering out to other people's studios around in Canada. Is that true? Uh, yeah, um, I know one of the SSLs ended up uh, over in Chad Kroger's place. Uh, he's got, he had a studio in Abbotsford. Um, and then that board now is going to be going into a place called 604, which is being built right now. Um, and then when we we had a couple of Neve consoles in there that we had replaced over the years with SSLs. And the Neves, instead of selling them, they chopped them all into bits and put all the EQ modules into... Uh, you know, sort of eight uh, bin bin boxes, hmm. and Brian Adams got a lot of those, and I know Bob Rock's got a bunch of those. So, so th- those kind of things are still still out and living. Hmm. Uh, a lot of the outboard gear, I'm not sure what happened to that. That was uh, the previous uh, or the last owner, and and he ended up having another studio, shut that one down, and opened another studio, and it wasn't a very good studio. <laughs> So I don't know where a lot of that gear went. So it is some of the gear is out and around. Uh, I don't know what happened to the second SSL out of there. You know, it was pretty sad for me when when Little Mountain disappeared like that. Uh, you know, you would have thought the old girl could have had a a better ending, or or at least kept her open just for the historical sense. But it was pretty sad. So uh, you know, I didn't. I don't think I've even been back in there since. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So which board now, looking back, did you like better? Did you like the Neve or did you like the SSLs? 
Well, the need is to me is the board to record at, at least rock music on. Mm-hmm. You know, it is just so uh, warm and musical. The EQ points on it are so just so harmonically musical that uh, they're great. But the SSL for me is the board to mix on. So you know, <laughs> if you record the rock stuff on a on an Eve, mix it on an SSL. Yeah, that, yeah. that's the best combo for me. Yeah, I, I would imagine that you know those you know massively tracked albums in the 80s would have been just crazy to mix on if you were still on the neve and you know you have every band member and everybody else you could find pushing faders for a mix <laughs> that's right that's right well even now when i hear one of the old lover boy songs come on i can still remember the moves i had to do it's so ingrained in your mind you know it becomes this choreography of you know, six guys reaching over each other, and when one guy's reaching across your chest to hit a button, and you're, oh, yeah, that's my cue to turn up the reverb on this thing. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's fun. It was, it, a mix was a performance then, too, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah, it was. It, you know, I, I tell people about that, and they just they still can't even envision it. And especially, you know, like I was working in a little small studios, and you, mm-hmm. you were kind of you barely had room behind the desk for you know two people, and you're trying to cram four or five in there, and you're reaching around everybody. It's like this bizarre, you know, vertical twister game going on to do the mix. You know. <laughs> It'd be funny, you know, at night you'd finish the mix and everybody's, oh, great, and we'd listen back to it a bunch of times. and Yeah, no, that's it. So we'd all go home and come in in the morning and Bruce or Bob or somebody would say, oh, you know what, I was listening to it at home and uh, we need to do a little bit more guitars in it or something. But now half the band guys aren't there. So, <laughs> so we had to, okay, well, what were their moves? Okay, and so three of us would have to do the move of six, you know. Wow. <laughs> but it was fun. Yeah. And then there's no... There's no recalling a mix. I mean, if you recall the mix, you're just redoing it from scratch again. There was no, hey, let's do a vocal up and let's do a guitars only. And, you know, there's yeah. none of these stems were being done. It was like, that's the mix. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was just crazy. That that and uh, Ron have been talking about, you know, the whole idea of, of cutting and splicing tape. And I told him that's the one thing I absolutely do not miss of anything else. I don't miss having to cut and splice tape. <laughs> It's a lot of work, but you know I don't know if you've sat for hours behind the stupid Pro Tools screen. To me, that's a lot of work. It's long and boring. At least cutting tape was exciting because uh, you know you made it work. Oh yeah, yeah. And you couldn't believe you made it work. You see all these little edits zipping by, going. You think I can't believe that tape's holding together. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's 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 crazy and. I know, I think it was like a month or so ago, I actually found a roll of the, the white backing tape for splicing just around the house. Like, holy crap, I can't believe I still got a roll of this kicking around. Oh, but, wow, uh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I miss that smell. You know, you'd walk into you know, a combination of the, the acetone or whatever on tape, you know, you that smell of tape and mm-hmm. cigarettes and coffee. Yeah. You know, you'd walk into your, ah, home. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you get out of the little weird little tinge of the stuff from cleaning cap stands and stuff that Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I still do uh occasional uh stuff on tape. Yeah. Yep. To this day. But uh, you know, there isn't a lot of tape around, it's kinda of harder to har- and harder to find. Right. So uh, a lot of studios go to they have sort of the, the five reels of tape. <laughs> <laughs> kinda of use it and bounce it into into pro tools and away you go so yeah i mean do you do you ever think that that uh you remember how you know years ago with the whole 
kind of the collapse of the tube industry and pretty much, you know, no one was making tubes domestically because it's a pretty dirty process and everything. And it yeah. kind of shifted over to the, the former Soviet Union and they were doing it over there in Eastern Europe. And, and now you got people back making tubes again because people are, you know, this kind of this whole new market of, you know, people rediscovering these small wattage amps and all of this stuff. And there's mm -hmm. a market for these good solid tubes again. Now that people are really looking back at things like vinyl and looking back at tape, you think that, you know, like an Ampex type of person is going to get back and say, well, you know, maybe we should start making tape on a limited basis again? Well, there are some people making tape, but from what I understand, that is such a dirty process that there's some some of the baths they can't do anymore because of the environmental uh, concerns. Mm. So the tape they make, you know, will shed more than the other tape that the old tape used to, or there's a lot of other inherent problems, which I don't understand about the chemical makeup, but they can't, they can't make it the same. So, you know, I'm not sure what that answer is. You know, they can do small batches of these, these things, but you know, the tape sure doesn't last. Uh, and the quality it definitely isn't there. Um, the last, uh, batch of stuff I had was, it was just seemed really noisy and, and it was beyond, you know, us being so used to digital now and so quiet, you know, uh, it was even noisier than that, you know, and I had to do a lot of, uh, at least in the Pro Tools, you can sort of do your trimming in between things and get rid of a lot of this, yes, right. or you can't when you're mixing on a board, it's pretty hard to do because you sort of hear the kiss disappear, you know, if you, if you dump your faders down, so... Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit more work to to work on tape nowadays, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't think it'll ever make a big comeback, just like, you know, vinyl won't. There, there'll be a, your niche market for it, and I know a lot of the DJs have, have kind of kept that alive, thank God, you know, and, and people sort of respect vinyl for the sound of it. But, you know, the general population is not going to go out and buy a stereo. It's yeah. just too nice having it on their phone and too convenient, and that's really what it's down to is convenience now you know yeah yeah it's it's true and, and you know it, it's too bad because there are people that do when they finally do hear vinyl and they go wow that's really what it sounds like and, yeah you know, then they yeah. kind of understand it but uh yeah 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 it'd be kind of cool if if you know some little electronic company you know sony or panasonic or one of them started making kind of cheaper good uh home stuff hmm you know, sort of a couple hundred dollar range and forget this thousands of dollar range because nobody's going to do that unless you're an audiophile, you know. But kind of get it so that now you got somewhere back at home you can listen to good music, you know. Maybe you're not going to carry it around with you, but, you know, hey, check this out on vinyl. Oh, it sounds so much better. Put your phone down for a minute. Quit texting. <laughs> listen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know. Because, it's, yeah, it's unfortunate. People go out sometimes and they buy, like, those USB turntables and they've yep. got horrible ADACs in them, so it's you might as well just play an MP3 at that point if you're going to hook it up through your USB and play it. And, yeah, uh, yeah, you know. exactly. <laughs> yeah, no. As soon as it's digitized, and and all all bets are off. Yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine sort of described it really great to me. Um, digital music, and no matter what sample rate, you can have a nice, really big, wide bandwidth on your sample rate, but it's going to be virtually the same. You know, better quality than. A low sample rate, but it's a lot like neon light. So neon light is flickering. 
And that's why it's so bright and harsh to our eyes. And if you sit in an office or at school and you have that neon light thing, like, you know, you end up with a headache, you just, you got to get out of there. Well, it's the same thing with digital music. It's on and off at the zeros and ones, no matter what the sampling rate. So our ears is, are hearing that, for, that flickering. Yeah. You know, we're not conscious of it, but we're hearing it. And that's why digital sounds so harsh. And you cannot sit and listen to a whole CD all the way through without turning it or changing it. Or, and it's that irritation in your brain. Yeah. And I thought, wow, what a great an analogy. It is. That is a really awesome analogy. I'm going mm -hmm. to have to steal that one because that's... Yeah, go <laughs> ahead. Spread the word. Because <laughs> that's, yeah, because some people, you know, you try to explain it to them and they just... You know, I've had some success with people trying to explain, you know, sample rates and loss and all that. But, yeah. you know, I think that really is a, a great way of putting it. So, wow. Awesome. Yeah, because, you know, our brain, you know, for the light thing, we go, oh, yeah, I get it. Because even those, you know, those new type of uh, energy saver lights, the mm -hmm. little curly things, but they're actually neon. Even those little things. And you get the low wattage where it's not the super bright halogen-like light. But it's still irritating. <laughs> it's like, why is that? Ah, it's the flicker. Mm. <laughs> so one of the big bands that you work with at Little Mountain, and and it's really great that you continue to work with them, is of course ACDC. And uh, uh, yes, you know if you think back to uh, the, that song "Thunderstruck" from Razor's Edge, Richie was wondering whether or not with that with that intro that. Really, you know, I mean, everybody knows that intro for Thunderstruck. Was that something that they came in with, or was that something that you guys worked on together in the studio, or do you remember anything about that? Uh, I don't know if they came in with it, but I know uh, I know Bruce or somebody had said, hey, you know, we need something for the intro of this. And, and uh, I think it was Angus said, oh, yeah, we got this little thing, and okay, great, well, let's do it. So we get all ready. He lit a cigarette and sat, sat on a stool and started playing it, and and song started, and and then going through, and then the part where the verse hits, he's still playing it. We kind of looked, and he just keeps playing, so we just let it run through the whole song. He played that thing one take through the whole song. He never stopped. <laughs> <laughs> so now if you listen to the mix, it's there through the whole song. It's just kind of dipped down in parts, mm -hmm. but it's just it's there through the whole song. It's, it's like amazing. And at the end of the take, the ash of the cigarette was right to the filter. It was still hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was such a great moment seeing him, him sitting there on that stool, and my hand was getting sore just watching him do it because that's you know one of those pretty fast and all over the net kind of riffs. God, how how could he keep doing that in one take? <laughs> yeah, that that is that's that's definitely to just do that like that all the way through and just those constant hammer ons like that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. But you know that was one of those songs like you know it's an awesome song. We loved it, but. At the time when we were doing it, we had no idea it was going to be the song that it is today. You know, it's, it's up there with one of their more anthematic songs. You know. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, like I said, it, it's it's really neat that you you know you continue to still work with them. So I think that must really you know that speaks about your abilities and and their trust in you. That you know here it is a new album and you know yeah. Mike's back on board and that's that's fabulous. Well, you know that band out of out of probably almost any band I've worked with is more family oriented too. Hmm. So I think they really uh, came in hard on our whole little mountain. Um, family thing you know they just thought that was so cool and felt so comfortable and i think at that point they pulled you know bruce and i into their family kind of thing so i think that's why i continue working with them yeah is 
but, you know, with his family. And, you know, they've got guys, road crew, that have been with them from day one as well. So they're pretty loyal band. If somebody's doing their, their job and, and up on the top level, great, awesome. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of look back at the history of them. And, you know, they went and you, you talk about it being a family thing. And, and really, I mean, you know, with their older brother producing all the stuff on the front end and, you know, and yep. then they, they shift over to where they find, oh, this is, seems like a family thing and they keep going with it. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool the way they did that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and even the sister coming up with her name and yeah. And I think she even had the idea for Angus as a schoolboy because he used to wear various stuff and he says at one point they had him in a Superman outfit. <laughs> I couldn't imagine that now looking back on it. but <laughs> Yeah, that's... uh. It was just yeah, just such an interesting band, and, and I mean, it continues, right? I mean, they they bring in Stevie to to, to help out and stuff, and just like yeah. keep it in the family, keep it in the family, and uh, yeah, it's just amazing that that they've managed to do that all this time, and and uh, yeah, just uh, band with a great story. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, another new good record, I think, and uh, I'm sure they'll be touring like crazy on it. I'm sure, and I'm sure that every one of those shows will sell out probably the instant it goes on sale. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> and I just, I wish that, you know, people that would buy those tickets and go see that band w would go to those shows and be like, you know, this is what I miss. I miss, you know, live music. Why don't I go see more bands? Why is it I only go see, like, this band when they're out and stuff? And, and uh, you know, yeah. just like, you know, they're like one of these last big arena rock kind of bands like that. Yeah, yeah, and then they actually play so good together. That's that's part of the show. There's nothing pre-taped or mm. or you know or auto-tuned or anything like that. They just what you hear is what they're doing, and I think that's the magic of them too. You know. Yeah, well, they come from that. You know, the Australian pub rock scene is is not for people playing backing tracks. It's for the real, <laughs> real deal. <laughs> yeah, or you get a beer bottle thrown at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, definitely. So, you know, yeah. when you're thinking back to Little Mountain at all, I mean, do you have any, like, you know, really great stories you remember back from those days of just of stuff you think back and go, I just, I can't even believe that happened. Just. <laughs> uh, well, there's, you know, a lot of uh, sort of late night parties. Uh, get the, the, you know, bands going out to the strip bars after the the thing and they'd end up uh, with these strippers down at the clubs or whatever and then some nights they'd, they'd call me up and say hey can you open this dude up we got a couple of girls who want to play them or the stuff or whatever so <laughs> okay so you know back there and be a, a late night with all the shenanigans going on so there's quite a few of that going on especially especially during the 80s you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty crazy but, yeah no it's just you know good old days there um and uh yeah and like i said there's always usually somebody there 24 hours a day doing something yeah yeah so, yeah. yeah i think we had we had joked to bob brooks about you know that you know john we, we didn't schedule any strippers to come on and talk about little mountain You're like bob do you get any strippers <laughs> numbers we can call and get them to come on and stuff and he he thought that was pretty funny but i was like yeah <laughs> yeah that would have been a great idea <laughs> wonder what they're doing now <laughs> 30 years later <laughs> uh, you know you, i mean you're still producing albums but i i, I hope they're not still stripping that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. oh man 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's always a blast having you on, Mike. We we really we really enjoy having you come on, and and the listeners also. Whenever we we you know we had you on before, that we get a, a lot of people contacting us about. Wow, it was great. It's like we, oh, you know, people nice. love hearing, um, you know, kind of the guys who who run the board and stuff. Or as some people say, the, the people who actually remember what went on in the session instead of the people mm-hmm. who were playing. So. Yeah, oh, cool. Well, it's, it's fun, and, you know, anytime I love uh, coming in and talking to you guys, and, you know, I'd love to pop by uh, live at some point one, one day. That'd be great. Come your way, and, you know, let me meet to just kind of sit down and speak eye to eye. That would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. cool. All right. Well, again, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out tonight to uh, to come back on and, and regale us with your you know, your thoughts on Little Mountain and everything, and uh, just definitely appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Scott, and uh, say hey to Richie for me. I will, absolutely. Sorry he didn't make it, but uh, there you go. And, you know, hey, if you got anything else you can think of that you forgot to ask, go ahead, Give me just give me a shout. I will. Awesome. Yeah. All cool. right, Mike. All right, Scott. We'll have a great evening. You too, man. Cheers, buddy. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right. So there's chat number one with Mike Frazier, as I said. Uh, Richie wasn't able to make it down for that one. So it was just Mike and I. But then, uh, you know, as you heard Mike at the end of the interview talking about if you have any other questions, then uh, please let me know and I'll answer them. And of course, Richie had more questions. So on September 9th, 2015, yeah, months and months later, we hooked up with Mike Frazier once again. And uh, Richie had a whole host of other questions. So, uh, whole second interview here for you. And just a quick heads up, unfortunately, on this interview, the phone connection was a little bit spotty, so there are some spots where it drops out or things get garbled or whatever, but lots of good stuff in here. Richie had more great questions. So glad that we uh, we got this second interview in with Mike. So without further ado, this is Richie's follow-up interview with Mike Frazier. Want to just dive in? Yeah, let's do it, mate. Yeah. All right, so first question I have, Mike, is that who normally chose the engineer for the projects? Uh, was it the producer, was it the label, or was it the band? Well, in the early days, a lot of the uh, the studios would have house engineers. So basically, uh, it would probably be the label or the management would phone to, to get studio time and then was asked, you know, are you bringing an engineer if you need one? And if they needed one, it was usually the, the head engineer would sort of get the gig. And if he was busy, it would sort of go down down the hierarchy of who was available. Yeah. I started working there. Um, you know, you know, you gotta wait till somebody either calls in sick or dies before you get to get in and in on the works. Yeah. It's kind of how it worked at the studios. Okay. <laughs> so when you yeah. got, when you got the engineering pro- project, what was your initial yeah. re- research up front? Uh, well, when I started at Little Mountain and started engineering. You know, like when someone came to you and said, right, you're going to work with this band, what would your initial research be when you were picked as an engineer to to, to do that project? Well, you know, I mean, just being assistant and, and working, and that's, you know, kind of where you got all your, your info. So, you know, you'd be the next one in line. Um, like for the, uh, uh, when Aerosmith came in, the uh, permanent vacation record, and Bob got called out of uh, town. So I got elevated up to the engineering, and that kind of gave me my engineering wing. So I mean, I was considered an assistant, so I would get more of his gigs. But that's when the producer, you know, Bruce Fairburn and the producers would then decide what engineers they wanted on yeah. the gig, and the sort of the house engineer uh, 
form kind of disappeared then at that time. You know, I got in at a good time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, now, of course, we've spoken to a lot of people who worked with Bruce, and he loved recording the full band playing live off the floor. Uh, yes. Was that difficult for you to engineer? Because you, you hear stories about a lot of live bands want to come in and they all want to record live, and it obviously has major challenges because one, yeah. you got to record it, and two, they got to be able to play the stuff. Yes, and then three, they've got to be able to hear what they're doing. So, you know, we would only have one um, system of headphones, so everybody had to share the same mix in their headphones. And, of course, you know, the drummer, uh, his drums are so loud acoustically in the room that, you know, he's in trouble hearing everybody else. And then somebody else says, well, the bass is too loud. I can't hear my guitar, <laughs> you know. So you had to get a a perfect mix in the headphones for them to hear themselves, which was almost impossible. You know, the guitar, he's hearing his guitar. Yeah. So he doesn't want any guitar in his headphones, but the drummer needs the guitar to figure out where he is in the song. And, you know, it's, it's a whole logistic nightmare. So not always the easiest uh, thing to do, but that's how, you know, most people record it anyways. You know, they come in and you basically want their live show in the studio. You don't want to start with just have the drummer playing drums. Uh, because where's his energy coming from then? You know, he's got to react to whatever's going on in the song. So Yeah, did, did, did you get nearly all the bands want to record live and some of them you just had to say, look, it's not going to work? Yep, <laughs> that's exactly how it happened. Because, <laughs> you know, they get them all playing live. And, you know, it was mostly down to, you know, they couldn't hear uh, the mix that they'd want. So we'd start trying to get creative and, and try to give them, you know, two separate headphone mixes. So we'd have to get another headphone amplifier in and okay figure out how, how are we going to send that and sometimes we get a little sub mixing board like a little Mackie board or something and and split you know things off separately there and from that board we'd send out a different headphone and you know it started working but you know pretty soon you go okay you guys get out there play live really going after the drum track now uh you know if we can get the bass locked in with that live and we'll just overdub the guitar. So don't worry, you know, just play a part along to the song. Don't worry about trying to get all your guitar part yeah. good enough to to perform it. So it sort of graduated more to that okay. uh, style. Now, when it came to uh, stu- working in the studio, of course, Bob knew his way around the studio, like, like the back of his hand. But with Bruce, yeah. how savvy was he with the technology at the time? Or would he just rely on you guys? as a, a soundboard for all that stuff? He mostly rely on uh, on us guys. Uh, you know, when mixing, because back then it was all manual mixing. We didn't have any uh, by computers or anything. Um, uh, you know, Bruce would be able to grab a couple of faders and push the faders up and down. But, you know, he sort of left the board and all the technical stuff to us. Uh, you know, he'd, he'd have some input on sounds, you know, if he wanted a little bit more yeah. uh, top end EQ on the kick drum or stuff. You know, he'd, He'd let us know what he's looking for, but uh, yeah, he was pretty hands-off. Yeah. Now, w- when it came to pre-production, uh, were you heavily involved in that at all? Because they, they, they normally did that. I know Bruce did it in a theater somewhere in downtown Vancouver. Um, yeah. Uh, but, and of course, that the whole thing would be completely different when they came into the studio as regards sound and that. Like, Would you even go to pre-production? No, that was sort of all done separately and, and never really usually involved. Uh, occasionally, like Bruce would probably do about a week of pre-pro, so he'd have the band come to town a week before we do the session and go into that. Uh, gee, I can't remember the name of the theater, but oh, it's a great little theater. 
um, and then, you know, go through it with them. And sometimes, you know, towards the end, sort of the last day, say, hey, you know, you got to come down and check this out just to see what we're getting here in the theater and can we reproduce that as a studio. So he'd maybe down the last evening they were doing it and they'd go through the songs. But, uh, yeah, Bruce did all the pre-pro kind of on his own thing. Yeah, and when you were mixing the records, uh, did you want the band's involvement in how it sounded, or did you just want to do your own thing and then present it to the band uh, when when it was all done? Yeah, that's still kind of how I work today too. Is uh, I like just doing it all myself. If my vision, my I let them come in with cheers so that they're not sitting there for the twelve and fourteen hour day getting all worn out and and be brought into my vision, they can just come in and see this finished product. Sometimes I'd be going away. You get the band all big and they'd come in and say, oh, could we get some more vocal? The vocal's kind of disappearing now. So, yeah. you know, they had a better perspective of of what the overall thing was with pressure ears, you know? Yeah, but what about the label? Would they want to get involved in the mix at all? Uh, no, not till we were pretty much done. Uh in terms of Aerosmith, uh, their label and uh, uh, John Claudner, uh, he'd like to hear when we're about halfway done, we'd send him mixes down to L.A. And then uh, he'd make comments on those. Um, and then as we got close to the finishing of the mix, he'd fly up to Vancouver and, and kind of listen and get involved and, and, you know, make any comments. Yeah, and of course you worked on a couple of projects with John, and I think we talked with Mike Plotnikoff about him a little bit. I, I'm mm-hmm. still trying to get my head around what made him great. How how did he recognize us, uh, a good a good song? Because he, he was obviously able to do it when you look at all the singles that came on the albums. Yeah. He was, you know, a really big part on, uh, you know, he had a great set of ears for uh, songs that would be commercially viable. You know, he... Uh, you know, for a good example, Love in the Elevator, we had finished that. He was towards the end of the record. And they have a break. We're like, what? Okay, so we had to re-edit the tape on two-inch and sort of create this this breakdown section that didn't exist. And that was after the mix, so we had to sort of remix parts of it and edit it in and all that. And it turned out really good. You know, that whole big breakdown in Love in the Elevator was... So, so, <laughs> so, you know, he had a really good perspective of songs that he knew he could sell, you know? I mean, yeah. Bruce really knew great songs. The band know when they got a great song, but um, John really knew what songs he could sell and, and push, you know? Yeah. So. Now, now, how did Bruce feel having, because Bruce, of course, has been the producer on the album, having someone like John coming in? Like I'm not questioning the songs. Uh, I I don't think Bruce had a problem with it. I mean, I know they would discuss things, and sometimes uh, John didn't always get what he wished. Uh, you know, Bruce and the band would sort of outvote him. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, basically, typically, you know, like John was Bruce's um, employer, so you know, Bruce sort of did what John wanted. But you know, there was a, a professional respect with all of them too. So this. Uh, really appreciated John's input and said, oh, yeah, okay, that's a great idea. Yeah, we'll try that. Because, you know, like I said, John had a good ear for, you know, he couldn't always pinpoint what was wrong or what was needed, but, you know, he'd say, you know, this song isn't hitting me yet. There's something missing. And the discussion would start and figure out what it was, you know? Yeah. Um, now, I, I picked recently picked up... Um the docking album Back for the Attack that Neil Kernan produced. And in the liner notes, it said that they originally wanted Bruce 
to do the album and it got me thinking can you remember um any other bands that wanted to record there and like big bands and due to scheduling they just couldn't get you guys have you heard any over the year any names over the years you know what i don't i can't remember and i, I don't think of any because you know all bruce's business was sort of done out of my earshot so yeah <laughs> you know uh i wouldn't have known who called bruce up and if he's not because of scheduling or, or whatever reason so uh i'm not sure yeah, can you remember ever doing a project there? And I, I, I know this happened over the years as well. That mm-hmm. you'd start there, and for some reason they'd just go on to some other producer or go somewhere else that it wasn't working. Or do you remember everything just starting there and you finished it? Yeah, no. As far as I know, there and you finished it. Okay. Uh, I don't remember anything ever falling apart. Yeah. Bruce is a good guy. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, he's got the records. You know, the platinum albums to prove it. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so, w- when all the rock stuff started to become b- big there, do you remember any yeah. of the other engineers there that were doing other forms of music, like the jingles? Or, were they? Do you remember them at all being anyway jealous that you guys were getting all the the attention? You know, I don't think that ever happened at Little Mountain. You know, we had such a great crew. We were all really proud of everybody that was there. So. You know, anybody that was getting some success, you know, like Bob and, and you know, again, myself later on, uh, everybody was really and it helped out the studio, you know. Yeah. The bands we got in there, the, the busier the studio got kind of thing. So, no, I think everybody was really, you know, happy and it was all one team. It was like, hey, oh, great job. Good, good one on that one, you know. And yeah. It was, it was really good times. Yeah. Now, did you mix the Bad English album, the debut? Uh, bad English. Uh, I know I did two albums with them, and I don't remember if the first one was the uh, the debut album or not. Yeah, I, I'm nearly sure you mixed the first one, and I don't think you mixed it in Little Mountain. And so first, the first one I did down at A and M Studios, which is now called Hanson. Yeah, I, one of the things that um, when we talked to Bob, of course, you were all employed by the studio, which meant mm-hmm. that like. You did most of your work in Little Mountain, and then you ended up mixing this album in, in, in L.A. Um, mm-hmm. Do you remember anything at the time striking that struck you as a little bit weird? Because did, did you do a lot of mixing outside Little Mountain at the time? Not at the time, yeah. um, but again, I think it was John Claudner that sort of headed that one up, and they needed a mix, and the band were all down there. John was there, and he said, "Well, you just come down here and do it." And I remember thinking it was that was pretty cool. I don't remember thinking it was too weird um, because engineers started doing that a little bit more. There, like I was saying, at that time it started becoming less and less the house engineer. Yeah, more engineers traveled. So yeah, I know. I just know at the time you had a lot of guys used to come into your place to do albums, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. But you guys didn't really do a lot outside of Little Mountain. Um, yeah, that's I, right. I don't remember seeing Bob's name on or Bruce's name on like anything really until the studio mm-hmm. closed. That was done outside yep. of Little Mountain. And yep. it, that bad English thing did stand out to me. I was like, oh, that was in '89, and Mike did that in in LA. So I figured mm-hmm. I'd, ask, I'd ask you about that. Yeah. Well, you know, also, you know, Bob and Bruce had a choice of what studio they wanted to do records at, and Little Mountain was a great place. Yeah. Uh, plus, they lived in there, but you know. Well, why go down to LA when you can do it at home? And we got a great studio. So. Yeah. Did 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 you guys get a lot of other studios trying to pry you away from there at all? Nope. 
No, no not at all. Okay. No. no, because again, at that time, it was sort of disappearing, the house engineer thing. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, other studios, we started working in LA a lot. And I know we went to New York a few times and um, studios are glad to have us, but, you know, hey, you're going to come and bring all your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I do want to ask you about a, a couple of albums that that you did there that I don't think we touched on with with anyone else. Um, the Poison album, the Flesh and Blood yeah. record. Now, that is a far a much more mature album album than the ones they did before. Do you think a lot of that was the band wanting to go there, or do you think it was Bruce getting that album out of them? I think it was Bruce getting that album out on them. You know, he wasn't too too much without uh, losing any of the the spontaneity and, and the, you know, the sort of the wild spark, but he wanted it to, I think, sound a little bit more polished and, and professional kind of thing, you know? Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's a lot more varied than their other stuff. Um, not as poppy. Yeah. It, it has the same, it has a lot of the same sound that they were famous for, but the songwriting is a lot more varied on it, I think, and more mature than on their first two albums, definitely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was all Bruce's uh, influence. Okay. All right, and the yeah. other one I want to ask you about, Mike, is uh, you did the ACDC Live album, didn't you, the one that they did on the Razor's Edge tour? Yeah. Okay, how many tapes did you guys have to sift through to get that done? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what? I'm, I That one's blank. <laughs> I a, can't a remember it all. A lot. <laughs> probably a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah probably and a what, lot. What was the producer's role in a live album? Because the songs are already there. So what was Bruce's role in that compared to doing a studio album? What was the difference? It's just probably making sure performances are where they needed to be. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if we had to take from a different show or something like that, or, you know, uh, you know, just trying to put together the best package you possibly could at the time, you know, yeah. so that would be his, his, his role in that one. Yeah. So final question. Um, I don't, I don't know whether Scott asked you this already, but, the one album for you that defines the studio, do you have one? It, it doesn't have to be one you worked on. Uh, define Little Mountain Sound. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, a bunch of them, you know, definitely the Aeros- the two Aerosmith records, Perlification mm-hmm. and, and um, Pump, uh, Blue Murder, the first Blue Murder record. Yeah. But you can really hear the Lonely Day sound on the promising Okay. Um, you know, I would say those ones really stand out to me. Yeah, there's been a couple of different answers now. Yeah, um, and you know, uh, actually, even uh, all Brian Adams stuff, you know, Reckless and um, Cuts Like a Knife and stuff, you know, that's all Clear Mountain recording at Little Mountain. Yeah, well, we're hoping to talk to Bob soon. Bob Clear Mountain. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah. So, according to uh, is it Ron, he came up with the drum sound there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I got, Mike. <laughs> nice yeah, and easy. Nice, oh, and, e- nice awesome. and easy. Nice and easy. Nice and easy. I'll go back. I'll go back to bed then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So ho- hopefully you get over our neck of the woods soon. We'll, we'll bring you, bring yeah, you for that well, beer. Yeah. Well, I was to see the CDC show at all. Did I see it? Yeah. I didn't actually get to see it. it was um, I think it was the first day of the tour over here. I didn't get to go. No, I was. I, was, uh, I, I, yeah. I know. I know. I would have loved to see I it. I heard it was. I heard it was a good one too. I was in the in Chicago for the. Yeah. Um, Ah, they're, still, week, they're, but, uh, they're still brilliant, Mike. Still a great yeah, band. Yeah, yeah, they certainly are. <laughs> I don't know how I don't know how they do it, but they just have. They, you just know it's them. 
That's, you know what? They're, they do it because they're true to themselves. They yeah. play the music that they love to do, and they don't follow any trend or try to be anything they're not. And I think that's great. And yeah. Pay heed to that, you know? Yeah. All right, Mike. Yeah. Well, I'll leave you go. All right. Cheers. Thanks, Richie. Oh, it was right. great talking. Yeah. Talk okay. to you soon. All right, Mike. Thanks. Yeah. Bye bye. All right. There it is. A rap for Little Mountain. Wow. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So uh, I think, again, I think it was a great idea on your part to uh, to come up with this one. And, uh, you know, nice job getting all the people together and all that. You did a lot of work on it. And, and uh, you know, I appreciate that. And I think uh, I think you had a good selection of people that we had on. Yeah, I just want to thank everyone. If anyone, any of the people who are on this are listening, mm. I really want to thank them for all coming on and yeah. sharing, sharing their stories. Because, like, we're, you know, we're the little show that tries. Yeah. And, um, Know, if people come on and they're willing to give us time we definitely definitely appreciate it yeah, and absolutely this one has been long but it there's a lot of really good stories in this and yeah yes i would have loved to get someone from bon jovi on and motley crew and I'm, I'm not dumb yeah we're not you know we're not we're not a commercial radio station no, we're not, we don't do clickbait either so yeah you we're know? not we're not going to get um i need a big 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 guys on but uh we had a lot of people on that worked with these bands yeah, yeah. And uh, they had some good stories about them, and some, you know, that's sometimes that's the best people. Yeah, the, yeah. Some of the, sm- the smaller bands sometimes have the better stories. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, but it's done now, <laughs> and on to the next one. Moving on, and, moving and, on, and maybe with this out of the way, we'll maybe we'll get back to a Saxon discussion. I am listening in the car at the moment to Lionheart. Ah, yeah, yeah, it's a great album. Not the new, uh, new two CD DVD. What two CD DVD just came out with it? Buy uh, stuff. Yeah, I'm sure you have. That's in the car. That's in the car. <laughs> yeah, I I actually thought to myself that we have to get the Saxon thing done. So I said, right, the next album we're doing is Lionheart. So I'll start listening uh-huh. to that. So I think it's Lionheart into the Labyrinth in our sanctum. Great albums. And we do no, we do three at a time. You sure? Yeah, we do three at a time. Is there only six left? I don't know. I've lost count. Yeah, if there's more than six, we gotta. Do more. Well, they keep putting them out before we can even finish. And they keep putting two out. <laughs> they keep putting two albums out by <laughs> the time we get around to the next one. But, but um, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. But, anyways, um, you know, as usual, keep up with us at focusonmetal.net, focusonmetal.blogspot.com. Richie's always up on Facebook posting the questions and uh, comments and all that good stuff. Always all, good reactions there. All the dumb questions. And always up on Twitter as well. And uh, that's it. It's all she wrote for their for this one, and uh, well, we might have something special in store for you next week. Uh, Richie's busily working on it. Am I? As we sit here, well, sort of, kind of, yeah. No, oh, okay. Well, we just go. Yeah, well, yeah, we did. Suppose. Yeah, so that officially means you're working on it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So now I know when this is airing. All right. <laughs> well, I mean, we only got a couple weeks left, right? No, I know, I know. All right. So, uh, Scott. Richie. And uh, saying have yourselves a great middle week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember. Focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here?
go home.